2 Corinthians chapter 6. I won't go into a whole lot of my process to get to the point where I'm ready to preach a section of the Bible. But as of 8 o'clock last night, I felt pretty good that I understood this passage. I felt pretty good that I had a handle on it, pretty much knew where the center of it was, and I was ready to preach it. And you're just very fortunate that we don't meet on Saturday nights <laughs> and that we're not Sabbatarians. Last night before bed, I thought, well, I'll go read that one more time. Just keep it fresh in my head. But I think I've got it. I've got it. Huh? But I'll go read it again. I got as far as verse 12. I got as far as verse 12. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I have assumed a meaning for this text. And I've just assumed that it had something to do with chapter 5, verse 14, and that Paul was saying the same parallel thing again. And I looked back at the context and thought, no, that, that, that's wrong. That has to be wrong. He's using a different word, and he's using it differently contextually. And therefore, I, I can't be right in my assumptions. And that changed the whole rest of the chapter for me. So someone mark the date and the time because Jim openly admitted he was wrong. We're going to read chapter 6 starting at verse 1. We're just going to assume that all of last week's commentary about the first 11 verses in this chapter are, are just a given, that you understand that Paul is pouring out his heart to the Corinthians and here's what he has written to them, starting in verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for our right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. Now look at verse 13, and you're going to understand verse 12. 
verse 13, now in like exchange, since my heart is opened wide to you, now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide also to us. We'll get to verse 14 in a moment. Look down at chapter 7, verse 2. Paul says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. So Paul, having spent the first half of this chapter really pouring out his heart, really pouring out his pain, really pouring out the agonizing, unstopping torture of the ministry that he is called to serve where he has been beaten and shipwrecked and sleepless and hungry where he has been in prison where he's been stoned and left for dead he has said despite all of that that I've had to endure to bring the message to you despite all that I'm not defeated despite all that I'm still living I'm still rejoicing I'm still making people rich I'm still possessing all things, despite all of that. So now I've poured out my heart to you. I've opened my mouth. I've spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open, and now he's going to start the section of, now you open up to me. Because what we know about the Corinthian church, from everything we've read so far and what we're going to see still, is that Paul says, the more I love you, the less I am loved by you. The more that I give myself for you, Corinthians, the less you show that like affection back to me. And so he says, verse 11, our mouth has opened freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Verse 12, you are not restrained. Stenochorio, I think, is the Greek word there. You are not restrained. Limited. You are not restrained by me. I'm not doing it to you. I'm not holding you back. I'm not keeping you from being kindly affection toward me. It's not my corrections of your behavior that are keeping you from loving me. I'm the man who told you the truth. I'm the man who brought you the words of eternal life. And I'm the man who has been repeatedly I know I've used the word tortured before, but he rightly is the man who has been tortured for the fact that he is bringing the truth of the gospel to these people. So he says, it's not me that's restraining you. What's restraining you from opening up to me is your own affections. You are kindly affectionate toward many other things, the things of this world or even the false teachers, or even the people that lead you astray. You are kindly affectionate toward the people within your church who are unkind, the rich who eat before the poor get to eat, the ones who don't wait on each other, and so that even your communion services are done so wrongly that God would curse you for it. It's not me that's holding you back. It's the fact that you haven't sent somebody out of your midst who's sleeping with his own father's wife. You've just been affectionate toward these things of the world, these things of the flesh, these carnal things, and because you like those things, you don't want to hear me say, stop it. You don't want to hear me say, do better than that. 
You don't want to hear me say, you are the called out, the chosen, the elect of Christ. Behave as if that's true. So I pour out my heart to you. I tell you the things of God. I tell you the things of Christ. And the only reason that you won't hear it and respond with like affection toward me is because you like your sin too much. And you like yourself too much. And you like your flesh too much. But if you would just listen to what I'm saying, if you would just respond to the word of God, then in fact you would find that you are kindly affectionate toward me because I am the man who's telling you the truth. So it's not me that's stopping you. It's not me that is restraining you. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections, which is why Paul can then say, so in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide also to us. Now, having poured out his heart, having begged them for a similar affection in exchange for the affection he has for them, that he would love them and they would love him back and they would be a community together. Paul's going to say in a moment, we're the people who live together, we're the people who die together. And yet you seem to be less concerned with the truth that I'm bringing you and the attendant behavior that goes with it. And you're more concerned that you don't have to give up the things you love. So then he starts in verse 14, again telling them rules, behavior. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where the end of this chapter gets very tricky because Paul's going to go into the Old Testament. He's going to go back all the way to Isaiah. And he's going to start preaching behavior for Christianity. And Paul does this over and over and over again. For a very long time, coming out of the very legalistic churches of my past, Once I got a hold of grace, once I understood it's grace, it's all grace, it's completely the grace of God, it's grace, grace, grace. Once I got that, you can hear it on the internet, all of my early messages are all just grace, 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 because that's what I was so enwrapped with, that's what I was so in love with, because it was so freeing after all of the legalism that I had grown up with. So I would say, just grace, 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 grace. And then one day, a fellow said to me, who will remain nameless, but his initials are Jeff Young. Okay, (laughs) does that help at all? I even remember where I was. I was in the parking lot of Sam's Wholesale in Murfreesboro when I had a little flip phone. And, And I was on my phone talking to Jeff. And he said, I agree. I get it. It's grace, 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 grace. I get it. Grace. And then he said to me, where's the call to holiness? And that question struck me. Because the Bible does also include, and the gospel does also include, a call to holiness. And Paul is about to do that very thing. So it's really important that we understand how Paul does it. And for those folks who haven't been with us for a long time, and for the new folks that are listening on the internet, 
I'm going to go back and explain the indicative imperative thing again. Because until you get this right, you will always be confused about the Bible's calls to holiness. Because the Bible does call Christians to Christian behavior. And the Bible does call Christians to holiness. Paul's about to say, touch not the unclean thing. Well, that takes you all the way back to the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. So you have to understand how Paul is saying it. Because in those days when I was grace, 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 and then Jeff, where's the call to holiness? It took me a while to figure out where that was. How did that work? How did that fit? Because I could find it in the New Testament. And I could see that Paul was encouraging proper behavior. And I could see that Paul was calling people to holiness. But every time I said it, I sounded like the legalists that I had left in my history that I didn't want to be anything like. So I couldn't figure out how to tell people, behave accordingly, be holy because I'm holy. Where do those kind of statements fit in the New Testament that's all about grace, 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 grace? And can you say it in a way that it doesn't sound like you're being legalistic? Because if I take the next couple of verses out of their context and just read it to you, you're going to say, well, that's, that's legalism. Paul is, is definitely quoting right from the Old Testament. We're going to go look at some of where he got this stuff out of Isaiah. He is definitely saying that the Old Testament has informed his thinking and that the holiness code and that God's standards in the law have informed his thinking about the kind of God he serves and that God's desire and expectation that his people be different, separated people. And all of that's true. And how do I say that without sounding like I'm thundering down from Sinai? How do I say that without you all going, well, wait a minute, you're the grace guy. When did you get all legal like this on us? Well, the answer is in the indicative imperative relationship. And once I got that, all the pieces fell into place. And then I came here a good many years ago. I'd gone to a conference in Lexington where two different men had come with notes to lecture, and they both brought up the indicative imperative. And I was sitting there at Main Street Baptist Church thinking, wake up, Jim. God's trying to tell you something. Pay attention. This has come up twice now. This is important. So I passed it on to all of you here at GCA, and it was really remarkable the number of people who said, that's it. That's the key to the whole thing. I get it now. So for those of you who know the indicative imperative argument, just, just sleep for a minute. We'll let you know when it's over, and then you can wake up and join us again. Indicative imperative. I'm watching to see how many people are shutting their eyes right now. Because <laughs> I can see you from up here. Indicative imperative. Indicative. That's a good English word. I'm an English major. I understood what the indicative is. Follow me on this one. I'm going to define indicative for you. The indicative indicates. Was that easy enough? <laughs> the indicative indicates something. It indicates what you are. And so the Bible is full of indicatives. You are the people of God. Okay, that's an indicative statement. You are the elect of God. You, you are the blood-bought, chosen of God, redeemed 
in Christ. Okay, that indicates who you are. Imperatives are any kind of command. Do this. That's an imperative. If I say, go shut the door, Luann, that's an imperative. Now, all of human religion and way too much of Christianity gets the indicative imperative relationship backward because they all say to you, in order to be this, you have to do this. And you can think of every religion on the planet. To get your 70 virgins, you have to do this. To get out of the cyclical wheel of karmic life and reach nirvana, you have to do this. And then way too much of Christianity says, in order to get into heaven and be saved, you have to do this. Any religion, any philosophy that says do something in order to get something is legalism. Paul never does that. Paul always puts the indicative ahead of the imperative. Paul always says, this is who you are. You are the blood-bought. You are the redeemed. You are the elect of God. You are the chosen before the foundation of the world. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ. You are the justified, called, and glorified. That's who you are. Now, knowing that about you, do this. And so his imperatives are all based on the fact that you are saved. Therefore, be a certain way. Act a certain way. And that's the way the Bible teaches it. The New Testament, New Covenant philosophy of how people get saved does include a great many imperatives. But the imperatives are not for the purpose of getting you saved. The imperatives are because you are indeed saved. Do you get it? Do you understand it? Do I need to explain it anymore? Okay, everybody's got it. Now... Paul is about to say some imperatives. These are instructions for the Corinthian church that are also instructive to us as Christian people. Taken from their context, they sound very legalistic unless you understand that he has started with the indicative of who you are. And because you are in Christ, now Christ expects this behavior from you. Now, people fall in a ditch on either side of these, these arguments. Some folks see those imperatives, take them out of their natural context, and do preach legalism. They turn Paul's words upside down, and they end up saying, Paul said, touch not the unclean thing. Yeah, yeah, Paul said it. Yeah, he's, he's going to quote it in a minute. And Paul got that straight out of the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah, and, he's, and he said, touch not the unclean thing. Well, I, I can preach a very legalistic message from that. And I can conclude from that that Paul was also preaching a very Arminian works-based legalistic message, taken out of its context. The other ditch on the other side of this argument is the, the free grace folks who say it's all grace, 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 and God is saving who he's going to save. And therefore, since Christ has fully redeemed us and fully paid for all our sin, it just really doesn't matter how you act. 
And so they preach, it's grace, it's all grace, it's, it's God's grace, Christ has done it all, and therefore your behavior doesn't matter. And they just ignore all of Paul's imperatives. The gospel rightly preached, the gospel rightly presented, must include both the indicative, everything Christ has done, everything Christ has accomplished, everything that God has done through Christ in order to establish you eternally in his courts in heaven. That all has to be preached, but equally the imperatives have to be preached. And the call to holiness must exist because it's all part and parcel of how Paul presents the gospel. And if you're eliminating either one of those in order to advance your pet doctrine or pet theory or particular theological bent, well, then you're not preaching the whole counsel of God. You're preaching a truncated gospel. <coughs> yes, ma'am. So to sum this up, you're saying... Please do sum this up. I wish somebody <laughs> would sum this up. Yeah. Indicative, therefore imperative. Absolutely. You know, you could have saved everybody in the room about 10 minutes if you had just summed up before I said all that. Because that's right. The indicative is always ahead of the imperative. You can see it time and time and time and time again. We're going to look at it again. And I don't want you to miss it because Paul is, well, well, here, here's the indicative. You want the indicative? Go to the end of chapter 5. Start at verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. There's the indicative. That's who he is. He's a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Okay, there's the indicative. We are reconciled to God through Christ. Our sins are completely forgiven. Here he's going to say that too. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, that's the indicative. Our trespasses have been paid for. Our sins against God have been paid for. We have been reconciled to God by God. That's the indicative. That's who we are. So Paul has laid out the indicative, and now he's going to spell out the imperative. So the imperative, let me say it again and say it as often as it takes to get this tattooed into your brain so that you don't forget it, so you never get confused by Paul's writing. He does this all the time. He is not afraid to go for imperatives, but he never conditions salvation on the imperatives. The salvation of men and women, boys and girls, is accomplished by God through Christ. That is God's enterprise. That is God's work all the way across the board. From beginning to end, God has accomplished everything necessary for your full, complete, and eternal salvation. That's done. But then, Paul, <laughs> but then Paul turns around and says, now knowing that about yourself, what kind of people should you be? And that's where the imperative comes up. Now, this is a really interesting series of imperatives that Paul is going to put in front of the church because, like I said, the only scripture he has to work with is the Old Testament. And so he starts pulling Old Testament imperatives and bringing them into the New Covenant 
overall gospel theology that he's preaching because he knows from the Old Testament, he's even said these things were written for our admonition, our instruction. And so he's recognizing the kind of God that is presented in the Old Testament, even in the law, which he says is completely done away with, but having been informed about the kind of God that we are all dealing with, how then should we react and approach and be with that God, and be before that God, and be the people of God. How should we be knowing that's the kind of God we're dealing with? You get it? Have I lost anybody? Okay, I haven't lost my daughter. Have I, have I lost anybody? No. Okay. So here's the first imperative. Tom, do me a favor and look up 1 Corinthians 7.39 for a moment. We'll get right to you in a minute. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now he's going to go on and make his argument for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. And we'll talk about each of those individually in a moment. But the point is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Very typically, people will use that uh, as a marriage verse. They'll say, well, that's really about being in the bonds of marriage with uh, an unbeliever, and you shouldn't do that. That's not what Paul is saying, or at least it's not only what Paul is saying. Paul is saying something much broader, much more expansive. Now, if you want the marriage verse, if you want the place where Paul says, don't marry unbelievers, Tom's going to read it for us. Because he does say to the Corinthians, don't be married to unbelievers, but not here. That's not what he's getting at here. Read it for us. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So there's the verse that says get married only in the Lord. Don't be married to an unbeliever. That's where that instruction comes in. But Paul is saying something much broader here in verse 14. When he says don't be bound together with unbelievers, he's talking about In any situation within the church where there are unbelievers and there are false teachers and everybody that are that are denying the gospel that Paul has been preaching and advancing. And he's saying, don't be bound together where they have a direct influence on you, because here he's going to say it this way. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. His first example for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness. Now, in that equation, obviously, righteousness is us. We're the saved people. Lawlessness are the unsaved people, those that are constantly breaking the rules, the laws, the commandments of God. But we who have been declared righteous in Christ are not to have any partnership with the people who are constantly breaking the law of God. Wait, he'll say it another way. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Okay, so now we're really getting some sense of what he's talking about. Those people who are still in the dark, those people who haven't been enlightened by God, those people who have not been regenerated, we who do know the things of God have been enlightened internally, and so we are seeking to please God in all the things we do. Well, then why would we put ourselves in a position where we're being dragged down by the people of darkness? Wait, he'll say it another way. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Okay, now we're really getting down to the nub of it. 
Because if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, and then we're dealing with somebody who's in darkness, an unbeliever, Paul goes past that and says they're not just neutral. They're actually the sons of Belial. Now, you'll see that in the Old Testament where they are referred to as sons of Belial. Some people say Belial. I I don't know. I'm going with Belial because I'm English. I'm sorry. I was just going to make a bad joke, and I was restraining myself. I'm not being restrained by Paul. I'm being restrained by my own affections. And so I'm, I'm restraining that joke. Paul is saying, not only are they in darkness, not only are they unbelievers, but now they are ruled by, their mind is taken by Belial. Now, you can read about Belial in the commentaries or on the internet. He seems to be the king of hell. It's a reference to the one who is ruling in the underworld. A bad guy, in other words. And the direct opposite of Christ. He set up in Paul's thinking, as the direct contradiction to everything that is Christian. So how does Christ have any fellowship with Belial? Clearly there's no fellowship there, so then why would you, the representative of Christ, have that kind of fellowship with someone who is the son of Belial? Yes, ma'am? Is Belial another word for the devil, or is it a different entity It really depends who you're reading. I think it's a a reference to the devil. I think it's another name given to Satan. But wait, he says it another way. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And now he brings it right down to brass tacks. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now before you... Start struggling in your mind. Let let me show you one other passage from 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 for a second. Because Paul is going to kind of clarify what he's getting at here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Okay, he's saying the same thing here, but then he modifies it just a little bit. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. The only way that you're ever going to not associate with godless people is to die to get out of this world. But you have no guarantee that the teller at your bank is necessarily a godly person, but you have to have interaction with them. There's no way for you to know that every customer that walks into Red Wing is necessarily a godly person, but you still got to put shoes on their feet, right? You have no guarantee in your day-to-day life that your neighbor is a saved person. You have no guarantee that the people you're selling policies to are all godly people. And so Paul quite wisely says, I'm not saying don't associate at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he be an immoral person 
or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Okay, there's another imperative from Paul. Remove the wicked man from the church. Remove the wicked man from your assemblies. So that helps us to kind of understand what Paul is getting at here when he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And you combine that with him saying, you're free to marry who you want, but only in the Lord. In all the things that we do in this life as a church, we have to be careful that we are not infiltrated by unbelievers, by people teaching a different doctrine, by people who are trying to lead us astray, and then we join ourselves to them. We associate with them, and they have influence over our conscience and over our theology. We have to be careful that we're not bound together with any kind of unbeliever, that we're not tied to them, associated with them in any way where they're going to influence our thinking. And the reasoning for that is because Christ has nothing to do with Belial. And when you remember that, it makes it really clear. And his parallel statement is, if you're a believer, don't be bound together with an unbeliever. Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now we've got to talk about this for just a second. Because Paul's about to say, you're the temple of God. He brings that up a couple of times. You have to understand his thinking about it, being a thoroughgoing Jew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He understands the significance of the temple. What is the temple? What's the key thing that makes the temple different than every other building on planet Earth? What's the one identifying factor that you can say this is true of the temple and no place else? The presence of God. The Spirit of God shows up. And so now Paul is arguing that ever since Christ died and the curtain in the temple was torn apart and the Holy of Holies was left exposed, that the Spirit of God is no longer uniquely and singularly in the temple. And people used to travel great distances to go to the temple because that's where God was. But ever since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the Spirit of God is now no longer simply in the temple. The Spirit of God is within the people of God in accordance with the promise that Jesus made that the Spirit was going to be with us and in us, no longer separate from us, no longer just in the temple where you would go and worship from afar, Now the Spirit of God would inhabit us. Therefore, Paul could say, we are now the temple of God. Because the temple of God is the place where God resides. And God now resides in us. So we're the temple of God. And then Paul uses that to say things like, don't use that temple for immoral purposes. Because after all, that temple no longer belongs to you. It belongs to God. It's been made separate. It's been made consecrated. It's been made holy by the Spirit of God occupying the temple. So therefore, don't use your temple for immoral reasons. You got it? I know I'm talking really fast. 
But I keep looking at the clock, and I got a whole lot to cover still. So I, I know I'm talking quick. If I lose anybody, just throw up a flare or something, and we'll come back and get you, and then we'll bring you along with the rest of us. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's very much like what he talked about over in 1 Corinthians 5. That if there are idol worshipers in the church, those people have to be put out for the good, for the purity of the church. If there are lawless people, if there are liars, if there's somebody who's up to chicanery and cheating people, then you have to recognize that their moral life, their moral behavior is not reflecting the Christ sanctification that they are professing. And so he wants the church to address these things. And as I said a half hour ago, the church at Corinth just isn't because they're affectionate toward the wrong stuff. And so Paul is saying, it's not me. I'm instructing you. I'm bringing you along in the faith. I'm teaching you the things of God in Christ. And I'm teaching you the proper behavior. But in so doing, it's not me that's restraining you. It's the fact that you have affection for the wrong stuff, for your idolatry and your drunkenness and your swindling. and your That's the stuff that you're kindly affectionate toward. And I'm calling you to stop that and to be the pure church of Christ. Here's what he says about it. For we are the temple of the living God. Paul uses that phrase frequently, living God, the living God, because he's trying to create a contrast between the idol worshipers who worship a dead God who worship stone and wood, the things that are made by men's hands, that can't speak, that can't walk, that can't think, that can't help you, that can't save you. By contrast, we are the temple of the God who is. The one who showed up to Moses and said, I am that I am. Elder Ward used to say, the God of the Bible has isness. He just is. And so, in contrast to the idols, we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. Now, he's going to pick this promise out of the Old Testament, which actually appears several different places in the Old Testament. I'm not sure exactly which of those he's decided to hone in on, but he's making this this quote to prove the point that we are the temple of the living God. He says, God said, which I also have to point out, sorry. I keep trying to go forward. But notice he does not say, Scripture said. Notice he doesn't say, a prophet said. He's read it in the Scripture, and so he says, God said. Because he equates every word of Scripture with the God-breathed revelation of God revealing himself to his people. So God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
Okay, so that promise, like I said, shows up several times in the Old Testament. That promise, I'm going to be their God, they're going to be my people. I'm going to be in the midst of them. I'm going to be with them. Paul is saying the fact that the Spirit has come and is now indwelling the people of God is proof positive that that is coming true. That God has promised through the prophets throughout the Old Testament, the day is coming when I'm going to be in my people. And now he is. And when he's in his people... They become his people and he becomes their God. And so he's arguing that that has come true. Verse 17, therefore, okay, what did Paul just do between verses 16 and 17? Indicative Indicative imperative. Well done, Jen. Jen's hanging with me word for word here. Where were the rest of you? (laughs) Verse 16 is the indicative. God is dwelling in us. God is being our God. We are being God's people. That's the indicative. Verse 17, here comes the imperative. Therefore, since this is all true of you, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Aphorizo is the the Greek word. It, It does literally mean to be apart, to be separate. And the essence of what it is to sanctify something is to separate it for God's exclusive use. Think about the objects in the temple in the Old Testament. In the Holy of Holies, there were a great deal of uh, objects and furniture. And that furniture could only be used for one purpose, for the glory of God. And so that furniture had to be set apart from every common use. And the way that it was set apart from common use was through the sprinkling of blood, sacrificial blood. There had to be a blood sacrifice which was sprinkled on the objects, and then the objects became holy objects. And because they were holy, sanctified objects, they could only be used in the worship of God and not for any common purpose. That language, Paul is picking up and saying, you're now the holy objects. You're now the ones who have been separated. You're now the ones who have been sanctified by the Spirit of God dwelling inside you. Therefore, don't be associated with immoral and unbelieving and belial type people. Instead, be separate from them. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. There's the imperative. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if you take it out of context again, and you just read from the second part of verse 17 into part 18, you can read it as, And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you and be your God. And you can preach a really legalistic message from that. If you don't already have the indicative in place. Paul has already laid out, and we read it back in chapter 5, in verses 17, 18, 19, 20, he's already laid out. God has done the redemptive work. God has reconciled you to himself. God has sacrificed his son for you. His son has taken away your trespass and sin debt completely and utterly. Now Paul can say, be different. Don't touch what is unclean. Yes, ma'am. He's talking to Gentiles. So what would be considered unclean that they couldn't touch? He's talking to Gentiles, but predominantly talking to Jews. 
the Corinthian church is predominantly Jewish. But if he was talking to strictly Gentiles, then quotations from the Old Testament mean nothing in terms of binding their conscience to God says, because they're going to be unfamiliar with that. And the unclean things, I think in this context, he's already defined, which is the unbeliever, the fornicators, the swindlers, the drunkards, the, you know, those are the unclean. So now it's beyond just don't be bound together with them. It's put them out, get them out of the church, and, and don't be affiliated. Don't even touch that. Now let's go see where Paul got this from because this is even more fascinating to my way of thinking. Let's turn to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 52 for a minute. And I plan to read a large portion of Isaiah 52 here. And I do think it's very, very significant, again, in the Jew-Gentile question, it is very significant that Paul is quoting from Isaiah and quoting from the particular section where the promises are made to Israel specifically that they're going to be redeemed and regathered by God. And then at the end of chapter 52, he's going to say how that's going to happen. And it's going to happen through the coming Christ. So this is all part of the big theological big picture stuff that he's going back to Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah specifically in the passage where God is saying that he's going to use Christ in order to redeem those people and bring them back to himself so that he's their God and they're his people. So Paul is speaking right from scripture, but because he's kind of doing it in shorthand, we might miss it in our 21st century Gentile minds and not get the connection that Paul has just made. And it's a brilliant connection. Now, I'm going to read for a while because there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. And if you just get bored, remember earlier I said, if you need to doze off, go ahead and do it. And we'll wake you up when we're done and you can come join the rest of us. Okay, I'm going to be reading for a while from the word of God. And if any of you fall asleep, we're going to beat you around the head and chest. Okay? Because this is the word of God. Wake yourself up. Pick yourself up. This is God speaking. It starts with awake, awake. It's right there in the text. And I do want to point out very specifically that God is talking about Israel here and Paul is bringing it into a church context so that you understand that it's Israel stupid so that Micah doesn't come running out of the back room and yell at me, it's Israel stupid. Payback. That's all that was. You did. You really did. And the funny part is how vehemently your wife agreed. (laughs) Awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Oh, okay, now Paul's starting to think in those kind of terms that in Christ and within the church, within the temple of God, there should be no unclean thing. So don't even touch the unclean thing. Purify the temple of God. It's exactly what Isaiah's talking about. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. 
For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. Okay, here's God admitting that they are in the Assyrian captivity. They've been driven out of their own land. And he says, I didn't require a payment from the Assyrians to conquer you and take you as slaves into Assyria. I sold you for nothing, so therefore I'm going to redeem you with no price. I'm not going to pay the Assyrians. In fact, what he ends up doing is punishing the Assyrians for the haughtiness with which they attacked Israel. But then he's going to redeem his people. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. That was the 400 years of slavery there. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Verse 5. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, that coming day, remember Paul said, now is the day. Now is the day of redemption. Now is the day of salvation. Well, that's what God's talking about, that day of salvation. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. So God is saying while they're in captivity and they're saying, where is God? The day is coming when my spirit is going to indwell them, when I'm going to bring them back to their land, when I'm going to complete all the promises that I ever gave them. And I am going to stand up and say, I'm right here. I'm God. I've always been here. Verse 7, this should be familiar to you because Paul quotes from this too. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. By the way, two questions, just to get your theology straight. Do you think God knows what he's talking about? Has he done it yet? No. No. Does he have to do it? Did he just promise he would do it? He just said, I'm the one doing it. Here I am, and I'm going to redeem Jerusalem. He hasn't done it yet, but he has to do it. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Has that happened yet? We know from the New Testament how it is that he's going to accomplish it. How is he going to accomplish all that? Through Christ, his king that he will set on his holy mountain. But keep reading. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. That's where Paul's getting it. Go out from there, don't be part of the uncleanness, and don't touch the unclean thing Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves. Now, when we get back to 2 Corinthians in a moment, Paul is going to continue this quote, and he's going to say, 
purify yourself. Hagiasune is the word he's going to use. And hagias is the word for holy. Separate yourself to the purity and the holiness of God. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear God. God in the front, God in the back, God protecting on all sides. That's how he's going to treat his people. Now, how is he going to accomplish this? When is this day of salvation going to occur? How is God going to regather all of Israel, and how is he going to inhabit his people, and how is all that stuff going to come about? How are those promises of God going to be achieved? Well, he starts in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. Wait, wait, hang on. You kept saying, I'm God, I'm going to do it. And now suddenly you've introduced my servant again, the righteous branch. It's going to become very clear in a moment that he's talking about Christ. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. Is there any question who we're talking about now? That's right. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. How does that happen? Okay, let's just pick somebody at random. Okay, Todd, you're just sitting there and you made eye contact with me. Huge mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. Did you always understand the things of God? I still have trouble. And then every once in a while, the lights go on, right? Every once in a while, you see something of the things of God. And you would have to say, I've been regenerated. I've been awakened. I understand this that I didn't understand up till now. No amount of people talking to you, no amount of people preaching to you, no matter how many times you read it, you didn't get it. And then suddenly, you got it. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit of God inhabiting you as the temple of God, bringing the word of God alive in your life. That's the very thing Isaiah is saying here. That he, Christ, is going to sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. That hasn't happened yet. That still has to happen where he rules from Zion, where he rules in Jerusalem and all the kings of the earth have to do obeisance to him. For what has not been told to them, they will see. They didn't know the gospel. They don't understand it's coming. They're busy saying peace, peace, and there's going to be no peace. And then God is going to bring sudden destruction on them. And then Christ is going to set up his throne and his kingdom. The thing that nobody told them is exactly what's going to happen and what they had not heard. They're suddenly going to understand. They're suddenly going to get it the same way that Todd gets it. Now you want to know who he's talking about? Chapter 53 continues. Remember that Isaiah did not write in chapters. He did not add versification. The numbers were added later by translators who wanted to be able to say, let's all go to Isaiah 53, and we can all get there at the same time. But when Paul was reading it, he didn't have verses. He didn't have chapters. He just knew that Isaiah said this, and that because Isaiah had it written down, Paul said, God said it. Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been, what's the next word? Revealed. Revealed. The strength, the power, the bearing of the arm of God, the absolute power and dominion of God has to be revealed. And to whom has that been revealed? For he, Christ, grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. Is it worth pointing out just for a moment that Roman crucifixion did not exist when Isaiah wrote this? And yet he saw that the Savior to come, the one through whom God was going to reconcile all peoples to himself, that one was going to be pierced through for our transgressions, which is why even uh, Zechariah can pick it up and predict that someday the Israelites are going to look on him whom they pierced. So this piercing of Christ is part of the prophetic presentation of the Messiah to come, which is why Christ had to be hung on a cross so that they could look on the one whom they pierced and weep over him like a mother weeps over her only son. Okay, back to verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Now, what about us? What about us? We're doing pretty good, right? Because we're, we're doing okay. That's why God would send his son to be pierced. That's why the righteous branch would come, because we're good, righteous people. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Which sounds very much like Paul talking about, it's not me that's keeping you from from being connected to me, pouring out your heart to me. It's your affections. You're being restrained by the things that you're affectionate toward. Why? Because all of us, like sheep, we go astray. All of us, like sheep, we turn everyone to his own way. Anybody want to testify? Can I get an amen? Amen. Can I get one of these? Yeah. (laughs) All of us, like sheep, have turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. By the way, Paul does pick that up in the book of Romans, and he does quote that. Paul's very, very familiar with this passage of Isaiah. He's quoted several different parts of it. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Doesn't that sound exactly like what we just read from 2 Corinthians 5? The indicative that Paul laid out. That he, through Christ, has taken away all our trespasses. That's what's here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. 
yet he was with a rich man in his death. Again, I just got to point out, Joseph of Arimathea didn't put Jesus' body in his grave for convenience. He did it because it was predicted. It had to happen. He had to end up in a grave that nobody had ever laid in before that was owned by a rich man. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, as a sin offering. So, so far it's he's come and he's died and he's dead and he's a sin offering and he's dead and he's cut off from the land of the living. And then God will see his offspring. Wait, what? He's dead. And yet God will see his offspring, the children of Christ. He will prolong his days. No, wait, he's dead. This can only be satisfied by resurrection. This can only be satisfied by God giving him long and eternal life after death. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. God will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. And yet... He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Go back to 2 Corinthians. I'm nearly done. I hope you kept your finger there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now all these things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Indicative, indicative, indicative. Based on what Isaiah has prophesied in advance, Christ was going to come to do. Christ has come. He's accomplished it. Because he's accomplished it, we are fully bought. We are fully redeemed. We are fully paid for. Therefore, Paul can say, therefore... Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, therefore, chapter 7, forget the 7, Paul's still thinking, Paul's still writing, Paul's still talking, therefore, having these promises, beloved, there's the indicative, We have all these promises. God has paid the price. He's reconciled us to himself. He's taken care of our sin debt. He has used Christ as a sin offering. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting hagiasune, which is just sacredness, perfecting or completing our sacredness in the fear, in the reverence of God who did all that. I made it. (laughs) I got there. Do you see it? Do you see how God has interwoven all this? 
through the mouths of prophets and through the mouths of apostles. And, and he's just telling the same story over and over. And it is this magnificent story of the grace of God who has bought us and redeemed us and, and taken us away from all of our sin debt and our trespasses. And he has accomplished all of that. And knowing that about ourselves, we should then be the people of God who won't touch the unclean thing and who will seek to complete our sacredness before God, the same way that a candlestick could be set apart, could be separated to God's exclusive use. God has set you apart, separated you for his exclusive use. Therefore, when you think about yourself, think about yourself that way and walk out your life accordingly. That's the gospel. That's the whole counsel of God. And that's allowing God to be God and say what he wants to say to his people. And what he wants to say to his people is, be separate, be different, I'm your God, you're my people. And that's not legalism at all. It's the appropriate reaction to the fact that God has done all that for you. Paul writes in the book of Romans that we should give our bodies, lay down our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So when you reach that point where you're tempted to do something in this life where you think, well, that's not very holy or sacred. Well, you're called to lay yourself down as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. And this just keeps coming up time and time again in Pauline theology. And so I keep bringing it up time and time again because Paul keeps doing that. Questions. Yes, sir. (laughs) It's Israel, stupid. Yeah. In verse 17, is the being separate there contingent upon the imperative of coming out from the midst? In other mm-hmm. words, is that verse teaching progressive sanctification? I don't like the word progressive sanctification only because it's not a phrase that's in the Bible and therefore different theologians can define it any way they want, so I just don't use the word progressive sanctification. However, Paul does call us to mortification. He does call us to killing the deeds of the flesh and reckoning ourselves dead. So to that degree, yes, I agree with you. He has already said, come out, be separate from them. That is all part of our completing the sanctification that God has already rendered in us. Does that make sense? Because he already says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, that they are sanctified. You are sanctified. indicative there. Yeah. Here, I'll put it this way. This, This might help. Paul writes, make your calling and election sure or secure by the way you live, by the things you do. Okay, now, isn't our calling and election sure? I mean, did Christ sort of do it? Or did he actually complete the work? Well, he actually completed the work, but Paul could then say, knowing that about yourself... Now work as if it's up to you. Make your calling and election sure and certain and secure. So I think he's doing the same thing here. You are sanctified, but now work to complete that sanctification because that's an appropriate reaction to everything God's done for you. So yes, there is a a tension, certainly, between Paul saying you are fully sanctified in Christ, but then saying work toward the completion of your own sanctification. I think it's why the indicative imperative is just so vitally important. Because he's not saying, sanctify yourself so that you can be sanctified. He's saying, you are sanctified. 
Now work toward that sanctification. Make sense? Yeah. Our Western thinking, logical, Aristotelian minds have a tough time with those kinds of concepts and sort of paradoxical statements. Paul's very comfortable with them. Yes, ma'am? He used to say that all the other world religions would say, do be, do be, do. Do you remember that? Then, Sadly, I do. <laughs> I, I, I do be, do be, do. Yeah. Be do be do be do. Yeah. Wow. Have you been in the archives lately? No. <laughs> That's how I used to define the indicative imperative. It was do then be. Do be do be do. But Paul says, be therefore do. Be do be do be. Do. Never mind. Never mind. Don't anybody come up to me afterwards and go, do be do be do. I don't want to hear it. Yes, sir. I think that this message is going to be a blessing to an unusually large number of people, but it's also going to be hated by the low information Belialo. <laughs> the Belial folks won't like it. Oh yeah, it goes with the territory. It's yeah. part of the gig. Yep. But thank you for saying it's going to be a blessing to many people. The people who it's not a blessing to, I'm not talking to them. I'm not. I'm looking for sheep. Yes, sir. Paul talks about a variety of people not to associate with, and then Jesus... Within the church. In the world, you're going to have to deal with those kind of folks, but within the church, don't let there be any so-called brother who acts like this. Okay. And then Christ says to preach the gospel to all creation. Yeah. Is there a conflict here at all? He doesn't say all creation except... I, this, 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 this. Yes, because Jesus also says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right. Because they're going to trample your pearls and then rend you. And he also says, if you go into a city and they don't accept what you're teaching, leave there, brush the, the dust off your cloak and, and pronounce a curse and leave. So even Christ recognizes that, yes, we're to be ready to preach the gospel to all the world, but there are going to be people who reject it. And we're not required to stand there and yell at them. We're, we just brush it off and keep going. So it is all creation except for the people who reject it, the people who are immoral. Yeah, I, I, I would modify that a little bit. I would say it is all creation. It is everybody. But once people make themselves evident that they are SOBs, sons of Belial, for anybody, <laughs> anyone... That was the joke I edited earlier. Um, Yeah, once people make it evident that they are God-haters, then we're not required to subject ourselves to their hatred for our pearls as they rip us and bury the pearls. And could all all creation be viewed as don't just talk to the Jews, but talk to Gentiles? Absolutely. No doubt. There's no question about that, because prior to the cross, Jesus said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But then after the cross, he said, now go into all creation and preach my word. So, yes, there's definitely a Jew-Gentile distinction there, too. Isn't the things that Paul is telling them to, to be exactly like living the life of Christ? We become more Christ-like in our there's a There's a joke that is about a little boy who learned in Sunday school that Christ was inside him. 
And he said to his parents, if it's true that Jesus is inside me, don't you think it would show? And that's kind of what we're getting at. If indeed the spirit of the living, creative master of time, space, and reality has taken up residence in you, it would show. And he's not You'd be different. To do anything that Christ didn't indicate. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.